Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. It's Friday, July 29th, 2016, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis. And I'm Kishore Hari. Each week, we bring you a new, in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at motherjones.com slash inquiringminds or inquiringshow.tumblr.com. You can also find us on Twitter at inquiringshow and Facebook. And you can subscribe to the show on iTunes or any other podcasting app. This isn't going to come as much of a shock to our listeners, but I'm a huge fan of science museums. And I remember that first iconic visit to a real science museum when we took a road trip to Washington, D.C. to visit the set of Smithsonian museums. I aimlessly wandered around the Natural History Museums there for hours, right up until they had to kick me out at closing. It was the first time, I think I was seven or eight, that I remember feeling incredibly small because of all those giant fossils and displays and those dioramas throughout the museums. I was just in awe. Do you remember your first trip to an amazing science museum? I don't, actually. I do remember going to natural history museums in a kind of vague sense and and feeling like, oh, there's not quite understanding how to navigate through them compared to, say, going to a zoo. But my experience with sort of collections like this is much more specific. You know, I remember, for example, going into uh, a neuroanatomy lab and seeing for the first time different fossilized parts of the brain and so forth. And uh, so I feel like the the kind of uh, relationship that I have with collections museums is very specific to a particular topic. Well, I'm going to convince you on, on this week's show that the collection museum has a place in the larger landscape of science education and Oddly enough, scientific research. Just in our backyard here in San Francisco, there's the California Academy of Sciences. And just one day when I was uh, there on one of my first visits, tucked away in the corner, in a quieter corner, because there were so many people at the museum that day, I, I wandered to this corner of this exhibit that talked about Darwin. And, you know, just on a little plaque there is this note about how the California Academy had funded one of Darwin's most important expeditions on the Beagle. So it did bring up a question to me, where do these collection museums fit in the future when they obviously have a place in history? Uh, And just a couple months ago in The Atlantic, Ed Yong, an amazing science writer, highlighted what is an emerging crisis in this field, uh, especially for U.S.-based collection museums. The National Science Foundation has essentially placed a funding freeze on the CSBR program. And this program essentially funds infrastructure at these, their ability to maintain uh, the collections off the public floors of, uh, of these museums. And a number of these museums are actually not even open to the public and the CSBR program just funds, you know, people to uh, maintain and um, and keep the collections alive. So this week, I talked to three different people with perspectives on how these collection museums operate, both from how they're a hotbed of ongoing scientific research to how they are important interfaces for the public to connect much more richly to science. Uh, Emily Grassley is a chief curiosity correspondent at the Field Museum. She's the wonderful host of the Brains Group, a YouTube show that takes you behind the scenes of the Field Museum's collections and personalities. 
Uh, Shannon Bennett is the chief of science at the California Academy of Sciences and studies infectious diseases that can be transmitted from animals to humans, including mosquitoes that she made me look at, which made my skin crawl. Uh, and then finally, Jack Dumbacher is the chairman and curator of the of the California Academy of Sciences Department of Ornithology and Mammalogy. And we had a ranging conversation about what these museums are going to offer going forward. So let's take a short break and we'll be back in my interview with Jack, Emily, and Shannon. This episode is sponsored by Magoosh. Magoosh provides online test prep for the GRE, GMAT, LSAT, SAT, ACT, TOEFL, and Praxis. It can be hard to find the time and money to prepare for standardized tests. Magoosh offers a better solution, affordable and effective test prep that is 100% online. You can log in anytime, anywhere, on your computer, tablet, or phone to study when you want, where you want. If you get stuck on a problem or concept, Magoosh offers friendly email help from their team of expert tutors. Magoosh's complete test prep starts at under $100, and they guarantee you'll improve your score or they will give you your money back. Join the one and a half million students who have chosen Magoosh. Go to magoosh.com, that's M-A-G-O-O-S-H.com right now and get 20% off with code MINDS, M-I-N-D-S, at checkout. Thanks, Magoosh, for supporting Inquiring Minds. Magoosh, prep smart, go far, enjoy the ride. Emily Grassley, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Thank you so much for having me. Before the Brain Scoop, you're Emily, that volunteer that worked at a small collection museum in Montana who was just really into dead stuff. I'm hoping you could tell us about your relationship with collection museums and why you decided to volunteer at one in the first place. Well, so I studied art at the University of Montana, and my primary focus was landscape paintings because that's all I knew as a rather sheltered naive kid growing up in South Dakota and Montana. So my subject was just basically what I knew. And the things that they give you to practice drawing and, and recreating in our class tend to be things like boxes and plastic vegetables and the occasional nude model, which was exciting, but even that gets a little old after a while. And so I had a, a friend who ended up volunteering in this small research collection on our campus that I had no idea even existed up until she started bringing in this fantastic art that was inspired by real artifacts and real specimens. And visually, it was so compelling to me. These were things that I'd never seen before in concepts I'd never thought about. She did a triptych on the evolution of the feather, which was a concept that kind of blew my mind when I saw it. And so I had this moment where I realized I wanted to make smart art. I wanted to make intelligent art. I wanted to make art that was reflective of these environments and not just in an abstract like landscape storm kind of way. So she brought me actually an, another friend of ours who was volunteering in the lab and, and in the museum brought me over there one afternoon. And that afternoon completely changed my life forever because without really knowing what was going on, I walked into this space that was just jam packed from the floor to the ceiling with all of these specimens. And I was suddenly surrounded by the remnants of our natural world in a way that was like accessible to me in a way it had never been before. And that from an artistic perspective, I found incredibly compelling. So I started volunteering there and I did an internship practicing scientific illustration, thinking maybe that was the route I went, I would go down. But the longer I spent in the collections and the more like late night conversations I had with the part-time curator who had been there for 20 years without you know, ever being raised to full time, you know, I started to learn more about all of the potential use of the collection and how it was being underutilized across campus, not just in the sciences, but also through, you know, opportunities with the art school or opportunities with education. And I thought, what a sad resource, you know, what a sad thing that this collection goes back to, you know, the very beginning of the university itself with specimens that date back to the 1850s. And the fact that there was one part-time guy who was in there and the occasional volunteer, but that it wasn't really being used to its potential was devastating to me. So I started talking about it and I talked about it on campus and I talked about it, you know, just standing outside of the museum and asking people to come in during the class breaks. You were the person outside twirling that sign, just like telling people to come in? Oh, yeah. You know, I remember one time just being so upset that I had found this thing that I thought was so cool and I had no outlet. 
And I went in the hallway during a passing period and I grabbed it like this guy poked his head and he's like, hey, can I throw my trash away? And I was like, yeah, but only if you check out this rhinoceros skull I just found. Um, and so eventually, uh, after posting pictures and updates on my Facebook to my friends and family, they were kind of tired of hearing about all these dead things. And, and I, uh, I turned to Tumblr as my outlet thinking that it was open enough that maybe that I would find a community of people who also loved dead things and appreciated anatomy and museums. And sure enough, that that's how I got started with this communication of natural history museums. Your show in a lot of ways is about the upkeep and maintenance of those collections, specifically at the Field Museum. You work a lot with the scientists and curators who go through the specimen prep. You go through drawers that look like they haven't seen the light of day, let alone a camera. Can you talk about what it takes to maintain these things? Because it's not just we collect things, we put it in a drawer and it's done until the next scientist comes along. No, I mean, any one of these collections has specific maintenance needs. I mean, you have everything from like the bird collection, which is primarily study skins and skeletons, um, but also a couple of things in alcohol. And right there you have three different preparation methods which require different maintenance. So the study skins have to be kept in these airlock cabinets with, um, they don't have insecticide, but you put mothballs in the collection to keep pests away because these skins are the last tissue of that organism and they have to list. We say in perpetuity in museums and when we say that we generally mean around 300 years. So these things have got to last for 300 years, if not longer. Because museum, like the the oldest collections, the oldest specimens that are still holding together tend to be about 300 years old. And after that, preservation techniques weren't weren't good enough. But now with all this technology, there really should be no excuse as to why we aren't using the best cabinets, the best materials to preserve these things. And the sad reality is that there's just it's not very sexy to pitch it to a donor to be like, will you buy us? more alcohol or more formalin for our specimens, because that's what we really need. And more than that, we need staff to maintain it. In our fish collection alone, that's 2.2 million specimens in alcohol. It's hundreds of thousands of jars of flammable fluid that needs to be curated, checked, maintained for leaks. The room that all of those jars in is OSHA regulated. You know, there's not a single outlet in the whole room. And so there's just a lot of very specific requirements for maintaining these collections. But that collection alone has one collection manager, no curators, and two collections assistants. So how are three people with a finite budget expected to take care of some of the only organisms that we have left of these animals that lived on our planet? You bring up a tension that exists. We've had the privilege, you and I, of going to a lot of collection museums and seeing the actual collections. You post on your Tumblr the behind-the-scenes pictures from the Smithsonian where there are rows and rows of drawers pulled out with thousands of specimens on display. kind of feels like the Ark is hidden in there somewhere. Uh, But these areas are off-limits to the public, especially those on university campuses. How do we bridge the gap between public interest, which is going to be driven by visual and visuals and access, and the needs of the science to keep these items carefully preserved? Well, museums have, that's a big question too, because like just in a meeting a couple of weeks ago, we've talked about maybe bringing in a bunch of Instagram photographers and getting them to enjoy the collection and then post on their social channels to kind of, you know, spread the word of our museums. And one of the, one of the arguments against doing that was like, well, the public sometimes gets angry with that you show these things and then they ask to see them and you say, well, you can't see this when you come visit. But it's a compromise between the integrity of that specimen, understanding that like, you know, one person comes in, opens a drawer, looks at a beetle. That's that's okay. But if you have that amount of traffic and so many people like one bump can bust a leg off of a beetle and you do that enough times and you're really kind Yeah, you're really, that's a lot of legs, even if it's a millipede, man, enough bumbling around and those things fall apart. And so, so museums have approached that in uh, in a number of ways. At the Field Museum, we have members nights where if you're a member of the museum, there are two nights every year where we open up all of our collections. Anybody can come through. Every, the researchers are out there. The curators have specimens on the table for you to touch. And that's, that's kind of the limit from staff capacity and from building capacity, how often we can do that, which is why I think it's really appealing to have more people like me who work in this digital world who can help people find the uh, the digital outlets for looking at big photo archives of our specimens or for seeing the specimens in a new light. And instead, you know, I love those Smithsonian photos you mentioned, but to some extent, they kind of look like 
creepy hoarders, the researchers who are sticking there. They're like, look at all of my wares. <laughs> you know, and there's just like, there's no, there's no bridge between that and the, the curator in their collection and how the public can interact with it. So that's something that with the, the advent of the internet and with social media, and it makes it a lot easier for museums to share that stuff with the public. But the physical interactions between people and specimens is still one that's a lot more difficult to manage. You suggest technology can really play a role here, but will it ever be a replacement for housing physical specimens? There's been a push to curate collections digitally by scanning them in, and digital ventures like your show BrainScoop take people inside those collections to generate enthusiasm for them. Are we ever going to get away from the need to have physical collections? I don't think so. Um, this has come up before, and it just makes collections managers sweat. You know, somebody's like, why don't you just take a picture of everything and just store the data and just get rid of the specimen? And it's like, there are so many, there are so many problems with that. Um, you can't extract tissues from a photograph. You can't interact three-dimensionally with a photograph. We don't have the technology or the budget to CT scan everything in our collection. And then it becomes a, a, a problem of data management, even if we did. Think about what the, the capacity of a smartphone to take a picture of five years ago. You know, smartphones, even if they existed five years ago, I don't even remember. Um, but just how uh, photography technology is improving at an unprecedented rate. If we went through and even began photographing our type specimens or 3D imaging our type specimens, that's still thousands, tens of thousands of specimens. And by the time we got through all of them, depending on how many staff we were, we would be able to hire, which is another problem, and being able to buy the cameras. By the time we got all that done, there would be new technology and our stuff would be outdated. And people would want, they would want something more from the photographs. They would want that uh, CT scan or image. Um, and we just, we can't keep up with technology. And the question is really what, what can you do with a, with a three, with an image or a three dimensional model of a specimen that you can't do by seeing the specimen itself? You spoke to staffing issues, which seems to be the crux here. Even the Field Museum has a, seen a pretty big decline in the total number of curators in the past 15 years. And the Field is one of the largest collection museums in the country. Is this an inevitable shift away from funding resources? And part of the reason we're talking about this is the NSF put a pause on infrastructure funding for collection museums. Are we in a place where we'll have to find another solution? You mean like finding corporate sponsors like the fish collection brought to you by Target? I hope not, because it seems to undermine the integrity of what that represents. But do we need to move towards individual campaigns than relying on federal sources? Well, we kind of do in the United States. And that's that's where it gets a bit scary is that like look at museums in Europe. They've been free forever. Uh, they've always relied on government money and taxpayers dollars. And now that's starting to shift. And for the first time, they are having to pursue these corporate and family foundation sponsors and private donor uh, sponsors that they haven't had to do before. So they're kind of scrambling like, oh, how do, how do we fundraise? Like, how do we how do we go to a wealthy person and convince them to endow one of our kids? curators. And so in the United States, we have it a little bit better, but still not much. I mean, we don't get much money from from taxpayers. We primarily get our funding from um, these big capital campaigns and donations and, and corporate sponsorships and things like that. But like to to, you know, take away the federal funding aspect of it is really frightening because it makes it makes us worry that the public doesn't have the the correct perception of museums um, on like a fundamental level. And it becomes this like we're always competing to have the sexiest science. So it's this fear that if we aren't doing cutting edge genomics works, if we're not using the best technology available to answer the most complicated questions, then uh, things like taxonomy are going to fall by the wayside. But what we forget and what we we fail to remember is that a lot of the new advancements that are happening in biology and health have roots back in museum collections. You know, when we've been talking a lot about the Zika virus and how, you know, the Zika virus is dependent on one species of mosquito. Well, how did you know what species of mosquito it was? You can think a taxonomist. And so it's just that museums are so far removed from the actual, like, climax of discovery that people tend to think that we're, we're old news and that becomes really frightening. So you need that consistent federal support in order to say, no, museums are important to be understand their role. And that role increases with um, the with the rate at which a lot of these species and ecosystems are becoming extinct. 
every time I go into a collection museum, it feels precious. Like I'm touching a part of history that may disappear. And it almost brings a tear to my eye sometimes. But at the same time, I have a deeply human interaction with the curators whose stories often aren't in the limelight. Can you tell us a little bit about these curators, what their work looks like, and why they do what they do? Because most of the curators I've met are in it for the long haul. This isn't just a casual uh, stop on their career. Yeah, it's it's a it's a legacy job, and this is this is another thing that that comes up in like. You know, our HR wouldn't have have their way with it. But when you talk about like museums are our legacy positions and, you know, it's the idea that we will take pay that is less than half of what what we may have, what we might get in some other field. But we you do it and um, you do it beyond retirement. You do it because it, it is your lifeblood. And it's this it, museum. People are strange people like there's just if you start working in a museum, you start working with research scientists, your every day becomes conversations about the weird and obscure. But it's said in a very like matter of fact kind of way. And to talk about some of these curators, I'll I'll share this story. There's this guy, his name is Datuk Dr. Robert F. Inger. Bob Inger is, we'll call him for short. And, and uh, Datuk is an honorary Malaysian, uh, sort of knighthood recognition that he has. Bob Inger was uh, a herpetologist, uh, and ichthyologist at the Field Museum. He was a uh, curator of fishes in 1949, became curator of reptiles in 1954, retired in 1994. And I just interviewed him last week about his manuscript on the frogs of Borneo that he is still working on. The man is 96 years old and he comes in multiple times a week to work on his revision of the frogs of Borneo. And during this interview, you know, it was one of those things where when I interview somebody, I typically have a structure. I have questions I'm going for with Bob. I was just like, just let the man talk. You know, he's almost a century old and he's worked in a place that parts of it no longer exist. You know, it's been it's been paved over He's made collections of some species that are inevitably extinct. And it got we were had been talking for about 45 minutes and I stopped and I asked him, I said, Bob, you retired 22 years ago. You still come in all of the time. I said, what is it about this work that keeps you coming in? And he just looked at me like I was an idiot. And he said, quite plainly, he's like, well, it's interesting. And he said, and there's still questions that I have and things that I don't know yet. And it like even recalling it, I get a little choked up because it was so remarkable to me that, that this man who you would think had exhausted every question possible about the frogs and snakes of Borneo is still motivated to come in and ask these questions, to admire these specimens he collected 60 years ago and to see how change over time and human expansion has affected these species that he has described. And so that to me is just like telling of the kind of person it takes to work in these collections, that these are people who are incredibly dedicated to what it means to enhance our understanding of of life forms on Earth. So you've dedicated your own life to this, and you're a little bit less than 96 right now. (laughs) What do you hope your legacy will be in terms of how it impacts our view of collections and collection museums? I mean, I don't, I don't imagine I'm going to have, like, to talk about a legacy like that. I don't, I don't know, but my, my whole goal in all of this and, and what keeps me coming back to it is, is just that I, I receive such joy and such happiness, uh, about learning about these things in museums, about learning about our world and, and the amazing, wacky, unlikely things that we share our planet with. It makes me happy, like in, in a way I've never experienced before in my life. I'm like downright just ecstatic, uh, to learn about some of these things. And I, and I, who would, what kind of monster wouldn't want to share that? Um, so I, so I've taken that, that joy that I experience and I've tried to find these different ways of, of sharing it through digital initiatives, through videos, through blogs, through photography, and through just a, a constant social media presence. I mean, pretty much every weekend I'm sitting at home and I'm just wondering like, man, I hope people are out there. Like, I hope these people who follow me on Twitter are out digging in the dirt. I hope they're looking for millipedes and I hope when they find one, they're just excited, excited to know that that animal was the first animal to walk on land and breathe air. I hope that that fact brings them as much joy as it brings me. So that's that's really what I want to perpetuate is that these museums are just sources of so much uh, amazement and bewilderment. And to experience that is really a, a privilege. 
You heard it here first, listeners. Send your pictures of insects you dig up this weekend. Tag at Emmy on Twitter to bring a great big smile to her face. Yeah, I'm giving you a high five right now. So excited. Please send those. I love it. Emily Grassley, thank you so much for joining us on Inquiring Minds. Thank you. Jack Dumbacher, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So I want to get clear that picture of what collections actually look like, because I think most people have the uh, vision of the end of Raiders of the Lost Ark when the Ark gets put away. Oh, right. Give us a sense of what the ecosystem of a collections museum actually feels like. Right. What's well, a great comparison, because at Raiders of the Lost Ark, they're all crates that are boxed and screwed shut, like you can't get into them, and they're all stacked up in ways that you can't even get to the bottom of the pile. In a real working collection like ours, you know, the, the cases are all there, the front of the door is right there, you can open it, look in, you can pull out a drawer and look at everything. So um, I like to think of it as, and, and you know, they're ex as accessible as books on a library shelf. And when you go in, you know, you can open it in such a way that you can peruse through the specimens and, and, you know, see immediately what it is you're looking for and look at patterns in a drawer or in a case. And I like to think of it as the most complete intangible and permanent record of life on earth and so it's it's a really important collection of what's out there you said permanent with a lot of emphasis why is permanent so important well because um because they should last forever if we took if we take good care of these specimens you know we've got specimens in our collection that are 200 years old and we've got specimens of things that went extinct 100 years ago and the, the idea is that, you know, you can't go out there and study ivory-billed woodpeckers anymore or Carolina parakeets. They're gone. Um, and so in that sense, the, the living populations are not permanent. They change. They move. They go extinct. They pop up in new places. Um, but the collections is a snapshot of that time and space. So every record has information about the locality where it's collected, the time and date where it was collected, and then, you know, the actual specimen. So it, it's the most complete record, and it's permanent in that that snapshot in time and space will not change, and it's there to be studied to, you know, for whatever you might want to study from it. Tell us a little bit about what it's like to be an active researcher at a collections museum. Are you in those stacks every day, just wandering and sampling different animals? Or are you going out in the field as well? Um, I wish I was in the stacks or in the field every day. Um, but, you know, most scientists end up sitting in a computer analyzing data a lot of our time. But what, what I love about the collections is that there's always somebody in there using them. So, you know, like a library or like any, you know, set of reference material, there are lots of people who will come and, and use those use those specimens. Um, for me, I think that my job is is to threefold, really, to build the collections. So to create new collections, because I think it's important for us to have a snapshot of our time and space um, recorded in the collections. So create, um, to maintain and protect the collections, because, you know, it's sort of my job to usher these historical collections through to the next generation of scientists. So I have to preserve them, take good care of them, make sure that they're not, you know, damaged or destroyed. But then um, also, it's my job to make sure that they're used so that they're doing the most work that they can for society, whatever society needs, whatever questions we need to answer, um, that those specimens are there for scientists to get in there and get the data that they want from the collections. And so, you know, on an everyday basis, what do we do? You know, there are people who want to get DNA data out of the specimens and they'll, they'll take snippets of feathers or toe pads and then they can get DNA. They can do, you know, sequence whole genomes from these, from these old birds that were collected before anyone even knew what DNA was. Um, there are folks that look in, at stable isotopes. Um, and you can get information about, you know, the bird's diet and where they moved over their lifetime, um, looking at the stable isotopes that they've um, sequestered into their tissues. And you can get information about environmental toxins and what that environment, that time and place, what those animals were exposed to. And you can compare that to today or to other times in the past. And, you know, what people will want to do with these specimens 100 years from now or 500 years from now, we can't even imagine. And so it's really important for us to record as much as we can and keep as much of the material as possible so that whatever questions people want to answer in the future, the material's there to study. Take us into what collecting for this current generation looks like right now. Are you focused on studying any specific area or animal type? Well, I'd say that 
the majority of the specimens that are added to the collection today are what we call salvage. So it's, um, it's roadkill, window kill, stuff the cat dragged in, you know, when there's an oil spill. Um, really? I mean, we're sitting at one of the largest repositories of biodiversity in the world, and that salvage is still the way that a lot of stuff comes in. Well, well think of it this way. Those are free specimens. You know, those are things that have already died, and, and you're not taking anything away from the environment to preserve them. And so why not? And, you know, and right now we've got people living all over California and wildlife hospitals all over the place. So, you know, we try and get as much as we can from from those places. And when there is an accident or an oil spill or something like that, it's, you know, it's valuable information about, you know, what that oil spill is affecting and how does it affect those animals. And sometimes we don't even understand how it might be affecting them until 10 years later or 20 years later. And then you can go back to the data and then actually ask those questions. Um, but that's not to say that that's the only thing we do. Um, we do actually do some basic scientific collecting. Um, so, for example, uh, in just the next few weeks, we're going to be going to Desert National Wildlife Refuge, where we're working with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service folks. And you know, even though we have these amazing public lands, um, we don't actually know what's on all those public lands. We don't know all the species that occur. And even where, where we think we know, um, when, once you document them and you have specimens, you, you sometimes realize you have new species or different populations that are so genetically distinct from others that they turn out to be new species. And you only get that kind of information if you have the specimens here and then somebody does the genetic work or somebody does the morphological work. So let me play devil's advocate for a second. There was an op-ed in Science about two years ago that argued that collections, physical collections, uh, in, in this way might be actually leading to greater extinction events because we're collecting rare species from areas that seem to be, you know, in, endangered in some capacity. And that we have other digital tools that, you know, photography, scanning, that could replace actually collecting the physical specimen. What's well, your reaction to that? Well, there, there's two parts of that. The, the first is that we're actually doing, you know, harm to the to the populations. And, and I would say that, you know, the, the level at which we are collecting, and, and we're very careful that we don't have, you know, these kinds of impacts on populations. So in places where we are collecting, there's usually huge, you know, huge populations of animals. And we're taking such a small, small amount that it's, it's hard to imagine that that would do any damage. And, you know, we have to go through so many different levels of permitting from our own institutional animal care and use um, to state permits, federal permits. Um, and, you know, there's ethical boards. So, you know, I, I would say that we really do everything that we can to make sure that we're not collecting anything that, that could have an, uh, an, a bad effect on those populations. And just to, just to point out, you know, the, the level of, of the collecting that's happening, I think people think, oh, my gosh, they're going in there just, just collecting everything. And that's, and that's not the case. If you think about how many, how many birds are killed by cats every year in Minnesota alone, um, if you combine all the collections collected all around the world in all the museums, it doesn't equal, you know, what cats can kill in Minnesota or, you know, the, the number of birds that are killed each year by windows, you know, and yet nobody's up in arm about windows. I mean, well, I shouldn't say that. There are some of us who are up in arms about windows, but I wish more people would be up in arms about windows. Um, it's a much more indiscriminate killer, whereas we don't kill, you know, or take things that are, you know, endangered or, or, you know, our numbers are very small, whereas things like windows and cats will kill everything they can. I, I have to ask, what's wrong with windows? Um, well, the, we, we know that um, that windows do kill a lot of birds. Birds don't see them. They, they see the reflection of the habitat outside and they end up striking windows. And, um, you know, up to, we estimate that between 300, um, 300 million to a billion birds are killed per year in North America by windows. Wow, so and they're not number. sort of adjusting to the... I mean, Windows have been around for, you know, a century at this point. So they're not adjusting to the fact that these things exist. Uh, no, they don't seem to be able to adjust. And, you know, to some degree, some populations do adjust because we end up killing all the birds that, that can't adjust. Um, and then the things that are left are the ones that do. I mean, that's why, you know, what you have living in cities is very different from what you have living in the countryside. And it's not just windows, of course, but I think windows are a big part of that. I also think we deploy so many more windows than we used to um, in, you know, big ways, huge reflective glass buildings that we just didn't build, you know, 100 years ago, even though we had windows. Yeah, we always hear about the wind turbines and the effect on, on bird populations, but windows are seem to be a bigger, by a factor, 
than all of those wind turbines. Well, combined. I mean, it, it, you know, we don't have as many wind turbines as we have windows. Everybody's house has a window. We don't all have wind turbines. So it, yet, yeah, yet. So you know, maybe in the maybe in the future. But you know, to get back to our other point, that's exactly why you want to get all that salvage because here are birds and and mammals that are being killed by wind turbines and windows, and and that collecting is already being done for us. So we don't have to have any extra impact on those populations so why not why not collect those so the other half of your question had to do with you know well can't you just do this with with photos and um and and i would say that you know no really you can't because if you look at the kinds of studies that people are doing with museum specimens today you can't do those with with images and even if you say oh well here's what people want today from an image then you can get images that might fill that need but then in a hundred years from now when people say oh we actually now we have this other question that we want to answer let's go back and you'll say oh well we didn't take those images because we didn't know to take those images but if you have the whole bird specimen then you can go back and, and get that data from the bird specimen so um so it really is an important thing to get the whole specimen there's been a lot of uproar from biologists particularly about the NSF putting a pause on the CSBR funding group, which funds infrastructure at collection museums. And I want to know what your sort of general reaction has been to uh, what has been a, a long-term decline in funding for collections museums. We've seen in most locations a loss in the number of curatorial staff that exists there. Uh, are we fighting against sort of a, a losing battle? Um, well, gosh, I, I mean, I, I, I hope we're, it's not a losing battle, but I do think it's an important battle. You know, every scientific resource that we have is, you know, it's costly to maintain. And I think, you know, one of our jobs is to make sure that we're using the collections as efficiently as possible and using and answering as many questions as we can, um, because because that's the thing that justifies having the collections. And I would agree that if the collections are just sitting there and doing no good at all, then why are we spending money on them? But, you know, being a person that works and lives in our collection, you know, I see how often they're being used and by how many different people to answer so many different questions. And so to me, to lose those resources is, is, is devastating. And you don't get them back. You know, so if there's a collection that ends up being thrown away or discarded and, you know, all it takes is for there not to be staff or there not to be a scientist in charge of that collection. And the other people at the museum don't know what it is or don't know how to preserve it. And, you know, they begin to get lost. The alcohol isn't topped up. The specimens begin to degrade. And, you know, once that happens, um, you lose them. And you never get back those extinct populations. You never get back those extinct animals. You never get back those snapshots in time and space that were recorded in those specimens. In a lot of ways, what you're talking about is just the upkeep, the maintenance of, of these collections, not even adding new items to it. You're talking about just keeping the existing things as is. And just out of curiosity, how big is the collection here that you oversee at the Cal Academy? Um, well, our collection of bird and mammal specimens, which, you know, isn't the largest one in the in the country by any means. Um, we have about 100,000 bird specimens in the collection, about another 10,000 eggs and nests. And we have about 30 to 35,000 mammal specimens, depending upon how you count. If you combine all of our specimens, you know, birds, mammals, botany, herps, the, you know, all of the invertebrates, we have about 46 to 48 million items in the collections. And, uh, and so, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a sizable operation and, you know, and every collection is distinct. So, you know, there's several large museums in California. There's us, there's UC Berkeley, there's LA County museum and several smaller museums. And even if you combine all of the specimens from all of the museums, you'll see that there's really almost no overlap that we're all collecting different areas or different snapshots in time. Um, and so scientists that want to come out here and study something, they don't just come to Cal Academy. They'll also go to Berkeley and they'll get specimens from all the, you know, different relevant collections. And so, it, so it's really important to try and preserve all of them. You're in an inter interesting institution because you're both a public-facing scientific museum and uh, an area that does research. But you can't necessarily show how that research is being done easily to those members of the public that come through the museum doors. They can't come down into the collection and, you know, go through drawers and, and see everything that's there. Can you talk about how you bridge that tension so that just the average person walking through the door of the museum feels the importance of that collection? 
Yeah, and that's a it's a challenging thing. We we do have lots of ways that we can share specimens. We have our nightlife programs. We we have a, a public facing lab on the main floor. Um, but I, you know, I, I don't think that it's it's always the funnest, coolest thing. You know, like the the main exhibits in the in the exhibit area sometimes take two years of planning, and we have multiple writers and you know a huge staff of people to make that as compelling and interesting as possible. And you know, science for the most part is kind of boring and it takes a lot of time. It's very incremental. And yeah, you know, at the end of a person's career, at the end of a multi-year study, you sometimes will have a graph or an image or some cool thing that you can tell for a few seconds on the public floor that really excites the public. But, you know, day to day looking at science and what happens in the collections, you know, people don't really don't want to see it. So. So, yeah, it's a challenge to try and share these things and, tr and to try and find compelling ways to do it. But we do our best and we try and put the collections on the public floor. And that's challenging, too, because the light on the public floor, the climate control on the public floor, it's hard to manage. And so the collections that go out on the public floor are in some ways damaged or destroyed. And some of the data that scientists might want to get from those specimens is compromised. And so, you know, we're, we're always trying to balance, you know, that use and how important it is to, to involve the public in the collections. Because if the public doesn't see how we use them and they don't know that we have scientists, then they don't support those enterprises. And so, so you have to do both. And, and, you know, it'd be wrong for us to think, oh, the public doesn't get it. Science is a separate thing. No, I mean, we're we our funding comes from NSF, you know, from taxpayer dollars, from the public that comes to the museum. And, and I think we all here at the, our museum feel a responsibility to engage the public and to share all of our findings with the public in any way that we can. We're always trying to find new ways to do that. So where do collection museums go from here? You think they're going to continue on in the same way? Um, well, that's a good question. Continue in the same way? Probably not. I mean, only in that we're always trying to find our niche. You know, what is it that the that the general public needs and wants from scientists today? And how do they want to engage in the public? And even what questions do scientists want to answer from the collections? That's always going to change. And so I think, I think if we're doing our job right, we're always evolving. And we're always trying to figure out new ways to engage the public, new ways to do our science. Um, but I hope and I really do believe that we'll always have something critical to add and that there's no reason that that we should disappear unless we stop doing our job well, unless we stop doing our science. I think that's a perfect sentiment to end on. Uh, Jack Dumbacher, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Shannon Bennett, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Thanks, Kishore. I actually want to start somewhere different with you in that I want to talk about malaria, but Ooh. not malaria, the, uh, you know, the parasite, mm -hmm. how you got malaria and how that got you interested in collections. Right. So I was a college student fresh out, about 19 years old, and I volunteered for a summer in West Africa, Liberia, to be exact. I went there fully loaded with all the state-of-the-art, cutting-edge anti-malarial medications. And within a few weeks of arriving in the upcountry of um, right near the Guinea border of Liberia and Guinea, I got malaria. And uh, everybody said, oh, the malaria here is resistant to anti-malarials. They, of course, were not surprised. I had Plasmodium falciparum. They treated it with quinine. Uh, but I definitely uh, lost a lot of weight. I had a couple of other things go on, too. I picked up some amoebic dysentery, had a little um, skin infection that turned into a systemic staph infection. And at the end of the day, I ended up hospitalized in a nearby leper colony. And I had a lot of time to ponder my state of parasitic attack and was really inspired, inspired by the way... All of these little beasts had kind of evolved around my defenses, uh, had developed anti-drug-resistant um, anti phenotypes, and uh, just that turned my path to the way of parasites ever since. Even though you're making these kind of cringe-like faces as you're describing <laughs> this, I have to say, you're saying it with a smile, which is not how I expect the experience was <laughs> at the time. Uh, so... It, 
talk a little bit more about how that actually drove you towards collections? Because I don't think about microbes and parasitology and think about a collections museum. I think about a university lab or right. research, you know, uh, a research lab. Right. Well, you know, um, so I, I, I was a survivor of that experience in, in many ways, and that's why there's a smile on my face. And there's a much, to me, much to be admired, I think, about uh, the parasitic way of life. Uh, I, my dad always said I was a parasite of very great renown. And, <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, every field of biology really requires the fundamental uh, act of observing phenomena in nature. And when I came back, I began a, a program of study for my graduate work documenting the presence of a certain kind of parasite. It, it was actually a parasitic worm related to the guinea worm, Dracunculus medinensis, and it occurred in very many different kinds of fishes, mostly in the intertidal and subtidal zones of North American Pacific coast. And so I collected fishes, and then I would use those collections, and this was at a university, to uh, go back and look at the presence of the parasite and its development. And so really collections, whether it's collecting observations or making physical collections, is kind of fundamental to all biology. And the, the way that museums have really branched differently from some universities is that they invest in those collections and keeping those collections for more than just the primary uh, questions that drove those collections. So my collections of fishes and their parasites you know, those were basically collected to answer my scientific question. And then those collections became basically my personal scientific collection. <laughs> but here at the museum, we actually collect for scientific purposes to pursue questions. And then we archive those collections. And what's really amazing is that those collections can be used for future uses that were never imagined at the time of the collection that weren't even imaginable at the time that the collections were made. Let's talk about future uses of collections that were never imaginable. If we rewind the clock, a lot of collections were used for you know physical observations for a number of years. But now we hear stories of researchers doing sequencing techniques on uh, uh, species in, in different collections. And this is something you do yourself. Can you talk about how some of that next-gen technology is showing up inside these collection museums? Well, uh, for sure, the most exciting parts of, of the collections for me is the uh, story that they hold about their um, not only where and when these different species occurred, but what kinds of microorganisms are contained within them. And in the old days, we didn't have the technology to use uh, molecular biology to find things that we didn't know should already be there. But today, with this technique called second-generation sequencing or de novo sequencing, we can actually capture the molecular signatures of organisms and microorganisms that we didn't know existed or we didn't expect to find. Now, that those microbes are surviving the, the preservation process. They can survive in, like, formalin or... Or, or whatever environment, because they're, they've been sitting on a shelf for years in a lot of cases. Right. Well, actually, they don't survive as a living form, but the genetic signature of their presence can survive in different forms. And sometimes it's broken down to various degrees. So a very complex parasite like the malaria parasite, which is a eukaryote, it has a DNA-based genome, and it can actually survive just as well as its host, with um, in different kinds of preservatives, depending on the kind of preservative and how the organism was fixed. So what kind of things are we learning? Are we actually getting to the point where there are actually interesting findings coming out of doing this kind of work, or is it just a flight of fancy right now? Well, so collections, of course, are very diverse in terms of their physical manifestation. And we have things sh stored on jars and shelves and formalin. We have dried skins. We have skeletons. And then we have an enormous cryo collection, which is a, f a deep freeze collection of tissues or whole specimens that's preserved through the freezing mechanism as a snapshot in time. And so depending on how it's preserved, you can get more and more information out of it. So formalin, 
preserved specimens give you less information about the microbes than, um, than other forms, and cryogenic preservation is the best and most information-rich way of preserving. But even still, in, in some, some of the studies that come to mind in the whole bird specimens, uh, we have had teams of researchers both here and, at the, uh, and in our community find evidence of pox virus in preserved whole birds. We have found, others have found presence of malaria, the, the malaria parasite in skins. But my work is mostly focused on the cryogenic collections. And we're taking collections of mosquitoes that have uh, been collected all over the world by ourselves and others, and we're looking in, at these mosquitoes for microbial organisms that could be either related to or directly the cause of an emerging pathogenic event. So it's really uh, fascinating that we can take these mosquitoes and reduce them into their molecular signatures, de, de novo sequence all of those molecular signatures and discover new viruses, for example, that we didn't even know existed. So we are getting a snapshot back through time of, this is almost like a, you're studying the fossil record of viruses in, in some ways. Right, right. The oldest specimens that we can really look at in terms of viruses, we have some specimens from the 1940s. Uh, and we can uh, get a snapshot of what different kinds of viruses looked like as far back as then. And the rate that viruses evolve, the 1940s really is like a living fossil record for a virus. So we can look at mosquitoes or human samples that have been collected back through time and capture the genetic information of those viruses and look at the genetic code of those different viruses and say, this virus is different back then than it is today. How has it changed? And how does that affect disease emergence? And are we at the point where that information that you're collecting, that sort of historical record of the evolution of, of these pathogens is actually informing research on either, you know, treatments or solutions or uh, uh, even testing for some of these pathogens? Well, I think the most important work in terms of, um, I'll give you two examples. Because of the work that we've done on examining how dengue viruses have changed over time, it's really been informative in developing different vaccine prototypes for testing because we know how much variation there are amongst dengue viruses and how much might be meaningful. Then when they design a vaccine, uh, they know to target those all those that entire range of variation, at least the stuff that's meaningful. With uh, some of our other work that's more exploratory, we've been looking at viruses that we didn't know existed and how they're related to viruses we didn't know about. And we're finding that in many cases, the viruses that plague humans today evolved from an ancestor that was found only in mosquitoes. So instead of thinking about viruses like dengue, Zika, chikungunya as being vertebrate viruses that the mosquito then picked up and moved around, they're actually in many cases, mosquito viruses that develop the ability to hop into vertebrates. Okay, that's going to be the most terrifying thing I think about all day. That's pretty mind-blowing. Yeah, it is pretty mind-blowing. I, I want to talk about a, a tension that I see that exists, though. I mean, we're here in a public museum below the public floor talking you know, about the collections, which are often out of sight of all of those thousands of visitors that are going to come through the museum today. And you particularly were talking about your the cryo storage, which I didn't even know existed here. So how do we translate that cutting edge research that's happening in the collections to that audience that comes to the museum every day? And, and frankly, is it important to do so? That's a really great question, and it's the one I ponder more and more now that I'm performing this chief role in our science division. Um, you know, museums, if you look up the definition of a museum, the original idea of a, of a museum was really formed around a collection. And the purpose of the collection was as a record of all forms of life or non-life on Earth, but a permanent physical record. And many universities have museums that don't even have a public-facing element to them. And they're primarily their purposes for research. But we're really here at the academy trying to expose 
the value, the incredible value, because it does exist, of these collections, not only for scientific discovery, but for education, for artistry, uh, all the creative uses you might think of a collection. Um, if, if you didn't know the collection existed, you wouldn't think to use collections in the myriad ways that they could be used to transform the way we think about the history of life on Earth so we can continue to sustain life on Earth. So here at the Academy, we're trying to experiment with ways of not only using the collections for science discovery, but using the collections in a way that our guests that come to the Academy can increasingly appreciate. That's difficult to do. I mean, these specimens that you're talking about in certain cases just aren't suited for that purpose because they're extinct. They're records of extinct animals or they're just fragile or... Or they're just difficult to, you know, uh, to bring out of their, their sort of storage area. So obviously that's a trick. That's a really difficult proposition. And there's been a lot of discussion recently about the decline in funding for collection museums. The NSF has had a decline in funding. Do you see that arena, that connection, actually being a solution for it with for how collection museums are going to exist going forward? We need more public input and awareness of them. Yeah, I think that, so you mentioned a couple of physical challenges to showing collections and highlighting collections. If you want to bring specimens out to the public floor, it, it comes at a certain cost. It, it can damage them. They become exposed to UV, temperature variation, uh, handling can be damaging. But what the Academy's really good at is telling stories. And we don't necessarily need the physical specimen to tell a compelling story. So whether we use our new um, multimedia outlet biographic or we use a scientific publication or develop a compelling grant, we can tell stories about collections for the different audiences. And those audiences in the past might have been federal funding agencies, individual foundations. But as we increasingly hone our ability to unearth those great stories and then tell them in an inspiring way to the public through ex exhibitions or educational material or wonderful multimedia productions, then I do think that we can inspire people to value collections for not only their scientific impact, but so many other important features. Where do collection museums go from here? I mean, the decline in funding from federal agencies has been well documented. It feels like we're in a period that change is coming. Uh, so where do they go? Do they play the same role? Do they evolve in some way? So, you know, we have... It just as funding is declining, we're also on the cusp of a lot of innovative technological solutions to unearthing the value of collections. And, and whether we're talking about new state-of-the-art genomics to show how impactful uh, collections can be in answering uh, really important scientific questions, or... We're using new technologies to convert physical specimens into some kind of digital form, whether it's a simple picture or whether it's a very high-resolution, in-depth image that can actually be used for research purposes. So I'm very hopeful that as we increasingly uh, develop better ways and uh, be better tools and better um, interdisciplinary approaches to converting physical collections into some digital form that can really unearth uh, the, the valuable information within them, that we can uh, drive the um, increasing investment into collections. But that said, it's an incredible job to, to convert physical collections into a digital form. And so our approach is, to, is getting back to this story approach. Let's use a question or a story, or an interest to then go back into the collections and at least convert some targeted groups of collections into digital form and then demonstrate how we can tell a story and demonstrate how this can be used in our broader research community to really make scientific discovery and impact. Speaking of stories, do you have a favorite story from the collection, one that resonates with you? 
Well, I mean, there's there's a lot of stories that I could bring up, but because I'm a microbiologist, most recently I've been following the spread of sea star wasting disease. And I'm very excited to report that the collections that people have made in the past of sea stars up and down the Pacific coast, many of those specimens are housed here at the academy. And so we're partnering with researchers in um beyond the academy to go back into those specimens and look for the presence of sea star wasting disease now that we saw what it looked like and we know how to characterize it by its genetic signature we can go back and look for it so that's a kind of story that's still unfolding but we'll be able to take the analog of a time travel device to go back in time before we'd seen the transformation of the coast due to human impact or due to changing water temperatures and ask whether the pathogen's emergence in these communities was due to human factors or other factors. So that's very exciting. I like the characterization that you are on Bill and Ted's excellent adventure through the Collection Museum. <laughs> Definitely. Uh, Shannon Bannett, thank you so much for joining us on Inquiring Minds. You're welcome. Thank you. Wow, what an interesting perspective that I hadn't really considered. You know, just, uh, you know, I take my son to the California Academy of Sciences, and it's a pretty hefty price tag to get in there. And you kind of have this notion that you're supporting what they're doing. But, you know, this this idea that actually it takes a lot more money. I know there's obviously donors involved, but, you know, that, and that this is potentially something that isn't going to get federal funding in the future, that it's 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 kind of frightening. Yeah, I would say the one piece of the interview that had the biggest impact for me is was off mic. So Shannon took me into the California Academy of Sciences collections. And she didn't just take me to that uh, area that you all kind of have in your mind of all of those specimens sort of pinned uh, in those boxes, like we sort of picture with all collection museums. Uh, I did go there and it was amazing. But she also took me to sort of places that you would associate with more current research institutions like the cold lab where we have all these specimens in deep cold storage and talked about you know looking at uh, bacterial and viral fossils amongst some of the larger specimens they have as clues to how we look at infectious disease now because if we don't get that picture of how viruses and bacteria you know were evolving and changing hundreds of years ago it makes it that much more complicated to solve the problem now. And I found that incredibly compelling that these are repositories of history that can inform current research in profound and meaningful ways. Yeah, so that takes us back to the conversation I had with Hope Jaron, you know, who studies ancient DNA and fossils and, and sort of has the same uh, perspective that, you know, from these ancient fossils, we can get information about, in, her, in, the, in one particular case, remember, that we talked about, you know, there was a time when in, in sort of parts of uh, Russia, things were uh, a lot warmer. And so you have this kind of Siberian ancient forest. And what can we learn uh, about that forest that can help us understand what might happen if the climate gets warmer? warmer. Uh, so yeah, I think there's there's a lot that obviously we can learn from these fossils, not just about where we came from, but also where we're going. And I guess that kind of brings me to, you know, you asked at the top of the show, do I remember my first visit to a, a collection museum? And, and the answer is I, I don't, but I certainly remember uh, a very formative visit I had to a collection museum that remains probably uh, one of my favorite museums of all time. And and you probably know that this is in LA. It's the Museum of Jurassic Technology. So, you know, I wonder if they're going to lose their federal funding too. I think this um, emphasizes an amazing point and a moral point at that is where do these museums belong in our history? Even fake ones that you bring up like the Museum of Jurassic Technology. <laughs> Yeah, you know, I, I don't know the answer to that question going forward, uh, but I certainly know that the California Academy of Sciences, at least, has really remade itself into a place that I want to go to over and over and over again. Um, it's not just a place that, you know, I feel like you go to once, but we're members because there are events going on in these kinds of museums that are interesting and, you know, new. And I think that that's sort of, you know, one of the ways to make sure that these museums are continuously supported is to have a really good program uh, of events in which that draws people in, um, not just to see the collection, but also, you know, to have conversations about it. 
most of these museums, a wide majority, are not open to the public. They're research museums only. They just invite, you know, scientists uh, visiting from different institutions in. And that's why I think the critical piece here are people like Emily, who are utilizing new technology platforms to take people into locations and uh, collections that they would never be able to access in any other way. Uh, so I'd love to see a proliferation of that because when you can't have a public interface to your museum, like the infrastructure just isn't there, uh, the value of that museum to the public wanes. So I think it's more and more important for uh, storytelling to emerge like that. And if you haven't watched The Brain Scoop, I encourage you to do so. It's uh, it's totally a trip and it gives you a taste of what going behind the scenes of the field would be. And maybe that's a, a place where we can use VR uh, to, to help power science. Oh, you just want to put on one of those headsets. <laughs> I do. I do. I do love VR. <laughs> so that's it for another episode. I want to thank you for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds. And we'd like to thank our supporters on our Patreon campaign, especially David Noel, John Kirk, Jordan Millar, Herring Chang, Nick Cadillac, and Sean Johnson. You can visit our website at inquiringshow.tumblr.com. You can support us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. And you can find us on Twitter at inquiringshow and Facebook. And you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas, a map to your favorite collection museum, or anything else you'd like to inquiringminds at climatedesk.org. Inquiring Minds is produced by our own Jurassic technologist, Adam Isaac, in cooperation with the Climate Desk. Our research assistant is Caitlin Smith. Our music is provided by award-winning producer, Rian Chien. And we're your hosts. I'm Indre Viscontis. You can find me on Twitter at Indre Vis. And I'm Kishore Hari at Science Quiche. We're off next week, but we'll be back in two weeks. See you then. And once again, thanks to Magoosh for sponsoring today's episode. Magoosh's online test prep is the easiest way to prep for the GRE, GMAT, LSAT, SAT, ACT, TOEFL, or Praxis. Magoosh offers top quality lesson videos with practice questions at a Magoosh offers top quality lesson videos and practice questions at an affordable price. Go to magoosh.com, that's M-A-G-O-O-S-H.com right now to get 20% off with code MINDS, M-I-N-D-S, at checkout. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.